Hey gang, this is Eric. Good to be here with you on Tuesday, November 6th. You know, I don't know if you knew this. I don't know if you've heard on the internet or on TV or gotten anything in your mail. But today, in the United States of America, we can vote. I know, I know. But yes, shockingly, today is voting day. So, if you're planning on doing that sort of thing, uh, today's the day to do it. You can vote. And then we don't have to deal with any more mailers and any more advertisements anymore. Hooray! Yes, it's almost done. Good morning, Danielle. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, Barb. Good morning, Bonnie. <laughs> uh, so, you know, and the good, good news is that after today's election, tomorrow we'll all get along again and be best friends. I wish that was the case. Uh, anyhow, we can pray for such a thing. All right, so today we're going to be talking about sex, purity, and Jesus from Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 14. Uh, now, I don't think I'm telling uh, any tales out of school um, to uh, say that we are living in a sex-saturated world. I mean, to point that out is to point out the most obvious thing ever. 70% uh, of all porn activity occurs during the work hours of 9 to 5. Internet misuse, mostly porn, costs companies tens of billions of dollars a year. 90% uh, of all children ages 8 to 16 have viewed pornography over the internet, usually unintentionally, and usually first exposure is at 11 years old by accident. Uh, there are more than 45 million new visitors to porn websites each month, and... Um, and yeah, the industry makes more money than professional football, basketball, and baseball combined. So it is, uh, I think it's fair to say, I mean, and I, and I can just tell you from my personal life as a pastor that um, an awful lot of counseling I do and uh, talking I do is about the issue of sexual purity and pornography is always a big part of that. Uh, however, lest we think that we are living in the worst of times uh, where we have to um, you know, I mean, which, which may indeed motivate us to go out and vote today because we're either we're convinced that, uh, you know, we're doing pretty great or we're, you know, in the, at the end. Um, it's always good to get some historical perspective. Uh, the church in Ephesus was surrounded by very similar issues. Uh, their city was famous for uh, its temple to the fertility goddess Diana. And one of the primary ways people would show their worship to her was by either having sex with a temple prostitute, which there were many, or by engaging in an orgy. And it was just accepted and part of the general culture to be involved in all sorts of sexual deviancy. Uh, by the way, you can always tell that a religion is made up by a dude when the primary means of worshiping involves sex. Like, shocking, just shocking, I can't believe it. Uh, but yeah, and uh, that's the, you know, the telltale sign when you see a cult. It's always like the cult leaders, like, turns out God told me you all have to have sex with me. Like, oh, what a coinky-dink. Uh, so this is the part of the world back then that was rampant. And so uh, anytime we're prone to thinking, you know, that, uh, you know, our world is worse than it's ever been, no. Sexual morality has always been with us. Sexual impurity has always been with us. And mankind has always found a way to corrupt God's great gift. Uh, so what does Paul say we need to be pure in regard to 
uh, how should we be pure in regard to sex? Well, first of all, in verses 3 through 6, if we're just answering that question, uh, he makes it pretty clear that we should be pure in our thoughts, words, and deeds. Here's what he writes. Uh, verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity, that's the deed, or covetousness, that's the thought, must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. That's the speech. Now this way of living is the exact opposite of uh, the love that we have been given in Christ to be sexually immoral. For love always gives... Sexual immorality always takes. Sexual impurity always is there to take. Its only purpose is to consume. It does not give. It is not intimate. Uh, so here's the, here's the way it breaks down. First, you have impurity in thought. And that's found in the word covetousness. So that's, that's in the mind. That's something that you're... It's another word that you could... It's a synonym of lust. And Paul actually refers to this as idolatry. He says it's a synonym of idolatry. So um, more on that in a little bit. Uh, sexual impurity doesn't start out of nowhere. Uh, but rather it's formed in the mind. It starts there. This is why Jesus equates lust with adultery. Because it's, it's the seed form of the actual act of, um, of adultery. And essentially it just means to lust after anyone other than one's spouse. Uh, secondly, that uh, yeah, kind of, there, then comes uh, impure speech. Um, Paul says, let there be no foolishness, uh, or I should say filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. Uh, contextually, by the way, sometimes, you know, this verse is used to say that, you know, one shouldn't curse or whatnot. You can make a case from that, maybe from other passages. This passage is actually uh, talking specifically about, um, you know, sexual boasting and sexual joking and you know being crass being rude because it's that's the context we're talking about sex here coarse joking or broadcasting one's exploits uh and then finally you you have what results in the deed and this is uh the immorality and that's you know sexual morality sexual activity or lust of any kind with anyone outside of marriage um so paul eventually calls all of this adultery idolatry in verse 5, and that is uh, ultimately what sexual impurity is. Um, here's what he writes. Verse 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, and then in parentheses, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Uh, in an article... Uh, for a journal for Westminster Seminary some years ago about the epidemic of porn. I think the author, uh, George Scipione, states it well. He says, there are clear connections between sexual sins, covening, and idolatry. Lust, at the core, is worship of the creature instead of the creator and the neglect of the good of others. Indeed, uh, that's fundamentally what's going on here. It's worship of the creature rather than creator when in full bloom. 
Okay, so that's the first call. We need to be pure in thought, uh, word, and deed. How's that for symbolism for deed? Um, <clears throat> third, secondly, we need to be pure in partnership. Ephesians verse, uh, 5, verses 7 through 10. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Now this word is, a, is certainly uh, applicable to us today, but this just goes a little further and says, like, don't, you know, we don't even want to be in partnership with those who are living a sexually uh, impure life because then, of course, we fall into the trap so even if we have the goal of remaining pure, if somebody, if we get with somebody that does not have that goal, we're going to fall. And again, as a pastor who's counseled a bunch of people, uh, a bunch of young people, I mean, my church in New York is almost everybody, almost everybody's in their twenties. Um, everybody has the goal of, uh, you know, staying pure, but, uh, it doesn't always happen that way if they get with somebody that doesn't have the same goal. So Paul says, don't don't get together, especially, you know, in Ephesus, when it's like you're surrounded by people that are worshiping at the cult of Diana and having orgies, you know, and, um, you know, that's what Paul's warning against. Uh, and then thirdly, the, we need to be pure in exposure, pure in exposure. So Ephesians 5, verse 11 through 14, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So Jesus says, indeed, uh, that we are the light of the world, and part of what's going to happen amongst his people is that we're going to cause certain things to be exposed. Now, this can be very easily taken out of context to mean that we have to be the shouting weirdos at sporting events holding signs or something. That's not how we see Jesus ever expose a sinner who is in the midst of their sin. He does do, he is pretty harsh with legalists about their sin, with people that think they're, they're cutting it and they're, they're really righteous. But with those who are living in sin, like John 4, for example, where Jesus meets a woman at the well, he's very gentle in bringing exposure to this way of life that she's been living that isn't good for her or good for her neighbor. And so the way that we would expose certain, uh, you know, these impurities is with gentleness and respect and care. Uh, we're not doing it to, you know, sort of shine a spotlight and, you know, carve a red letter S on the person. Um, and especially we have to remember that if we're, you know, if we expose someone else's sin, um, you know, like just out of love and care for them, like, listen, I don't think this is a good situation for you. I care about you. I don't want to see you get hurt we better darn well be sure that we're being honest about our own sin. We better darn well be sure we're coming to them as a fellow sinner in need of grace and help too, or else it will fall on deaf ears pretty quick as it comes across as hypocritical. So, so those are the three things we're really called to do, okay? So when it comes to purity, we need to be uh, pure in thought, word, and deed, pure in partnership, and pure in exposure. And this would be a... Uh, a typical sermon in many a pulpit. Uh, this would be a typical message. And the average human being goes, 
all right, good, I got my marching orders, I know what I need to do, I'm just gonna scrub my mind, and I'm gonna make sure that my words are clean, and that my actions are pure, and uh, I'm gonna make sure that I don't uh, hang out with any of them people that, uh, you know, have sex, and, uh, you know, you, you got your marching orders. Mm. Here's the problem with that message. If I just give you that message, if Paul just gives us that message, uh, I can guarantee you it will either lead to pride or despair. It always, always does. The law, trying to accomplish the law by the law, always leads there. So what we need is to be reminded, first and foremost, anchored in who Paul says we are, who God says we are. If we would have any hope of walking in purity, then we need to go back to verses 1 and 2, where Paul reminds us that through faith in Jesus Christ, we already are declared pure. Listen to the language. Verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is Old Testament sacrifice language here. In the Old Testament, the people would sacrifice an animal on the altar as a substitute for themselves. Why? Literally, to purify them from sins. We're told numerous times that the smell of that sacrifice was a pleasing aroma in the nostrils of God. Christ is the fulfillment of that picture for you. His sacrifice was in our place. It pleases the Father so that you and I could be declared pure, saved from hell, and live with him forever. So, what's most important for you to know, if you would seek to live pure in the way that Paul prescribes in this passage, is first and foremost, you are a pure child of God. I don't care how unclean you are, what you've done. You need to remember, dear Christian, Christ has shined on you. He has woken you up. He has risen you from the dead. He has given you new clean clothes, never to be stained again, and power to walk in purity. So to the adulterous woman who had lived a sexually immoral life and was very impure when being brought to Jesus in John 8 is not condemned by him but instead is assured that she is forgiven of her sins. Christ shines on the impure, making them pure. In his baptism, he washes you by the water of his life. What God does, what this whole story of the Bible is about, I mean, when it all comes down to it, here's the story. You want to know what it's all about. God takes impure people, and makes them beautiful, pure trophies of his grace so that he can show them off to the world, not because of how great they are, but because of how great he is. There's the story. God takes sinners like you and I with impure thoughts, impure words, and impure actions, and by faith in Jesus Christ says, I'm declaring you to be pure. And you say, well... I know what I've thought, and I know what I've done, and I know what I've said, and I don't feel pure. And he says, too bad. Jesus already made sure 
that you don't have a say in the matter. You're washed. So walk in it. Okay, will do. <laughs> so, so that's the story, gang. Uh, that's the story when it comes to sexual purity, and I hope more than anything that's the story for you when it comes to your view of how God sees you. So that's it for this week. Have a great week. We'll see you next Tuesday. Although, you know, I'll be with Dan Price next Tuesday. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to have to make sure that, um, you know, I kick him out of the room so he won't bug me while I'm doing this. But uh, anyhow, we'll see you then. God bless.